I'm James. I'm Dan. And who are you? Scourge of the North. Scourge of the North is here with us. <laughs> an, an invasion. It's, it is an invasion. He's, uh, they, they came down from the mighty north. And where are we today, Dan? Well, so our, the fictional place we're from is the Comeback Inn, of course, from Blackmore. But actually, we are from Dave Arneson's Blackmore studio at Full Sail University. Awesome. So quick background of what... what What's the importance of Full Sail in here? Sure, so uh, Full Sail Make is sure you where... you check this out. So Dave Arneson, one of the co-founders of D&D, uh, taught here at Full Sail uh, in, in the latter years of his life. And uh, in 2010, Full Sail, after his passing, dedicated this studio to his honor uh, and named it Dave Arneson's Blackmore Studio. And so we thought we'd uh, take from here, we're in Winter Park, Florida, right? So our neck of the woods. Right. And so we 15 thought, minutes from Orlando. Exactly. Uh, and home of GrodCon, of course. That's right. And so 2020. We, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> so, Coming up. <laughs> the, clock is, the countdown clock is on. Oh, great. And so are you started yet? Have you started on your adventures, Vic? Oh. For GrodCon well, 2020? I don't know which one I'm running yet. Okay. <laughs> that's, well, that's a, a maybe. And so in Vic Dorso here, Scourge from the North, hails from Minneapolis. Uh, the home of Dave Arneson. Yeah. And so we thought we would do the Minneapolis-Orlando connection. This is their de- uh, annual invasion. They come down here uh, to wreak havoc and bring the, uh, the north down to us. And so we're actually playing a game this afternoon at our local game store, which, by the way, thanks to Vic, we, we got some wonderful shirts from up north. So, Vic, can you uh, kind of give the background uh, on these? This is uh, the Source Comic and Games in Roseville, Minnesota, the premier... Um, game store and Dave Arnson actually played uh, Dungeons and Dragons here. And, and yes. so, so wonderful. So we Thank want to shout out to them and maybe when we uh, go up to uh, see it, see you all in Minis- uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, we can, you can take us there. So what's the chat looking like? Production Goblin's here also, which yep. we appreciate. He's still on uh, winter break. And the... Uh, uh, Emperor Strangler. The Emperor, Emperor Strangler is in the house. Emperor Strangler is off the side. She's behind us. That's right. Late, if this doesn't go well, she's yeah. just going to come around here and. Ch- yeah. Actually, you, could, you know what you can do if you don't like what we're saying, you can use your, yeah. you can use your prop and just uh, throw. Yeah, why do you have rope with you? <laughs> yeah. Good. yeah, just show show us the rope, Jeannie. Wow. See. see so if, if we are ready. If, 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 if actually we'll do a poll later. If it's not going well, yeah. just production guys tell us which person. I assume you don't want your father murdered. So which of the other two is the strangler going we to murder? Should start with the production goblin. He's at the bottom. Isn't he should he? hang himself. That's, that's very morbid. So and we, and we should mention too, right? Because we've got uh, we're in front of a display case here, yep. a Dave Arneson display case, uh, which has here uh, the white box and the four OD&D books yep. signed by Dave Arneson, uh, which is very cool. Super cool. Yep, and it's got a poly, a large, uh, soft polyhedral die also signed yeah. signed by Dave Arneson and some ships because he was big into naval combat. I know yep. you own a copy of uh, his rules, yep. right? Yep. I don't give up the ship. I don't give up the ship, yep. And a lot of photos of Dave Arneson and a copy of, I assume this is not the actual one used. Right. That would be pretty amazing. But of the, uh, the model castle that was used for Blackmore when he ran his Blackmore campaign. So, so we'll take some right. pictures and post them on Twitter when we're, when we're done here. So, uh, so we, we actually have a special guest coming on. And because we're remote, we definitely want to get this going before batteries and we get kicked out because... 
we're technically here by ourselves. We've kind of infiltrated here somewhat. Right. That, that display case behind us is looking awfully good. Yeah, we, we are literally, <laughs> no one is within us. Our plan Security. has worked. Right. I've already checked it. There's no, there's no alarm. That's right. Yes. That's right. And, and he's a fourth level thief. That's right. Did you bring so up these picks and tools? We've literally um, snuck in here. Yes, I did. <laughs> our, our, our trick has worked yeah, beautifully. Co cover the thing for a second. Yes. Audio difficulties or technical difficulties. <laughs> Be right back. It's just a loop. Yeah. It's just like the... it's a trap. So a trap. anyway, uh, we're uh, we're here, and what our special guest uh, is going to be who? Uh, Dan. It is going to be Dave Wesley, who was a member of the uh, Blackmore Bunch, right? And right. Uh, Dave Arneson's original Blackmore group, uh, and so uh, some have credited him. Dave Arneson, I think, credited mm. him with actually coming up with the idea of role-playing games. Well, wonderful. Let's try to give them a call. So this is super exciting. We're remote. We're making phone calls. What could possibly go wrong right? in this live thing? Let, let's see. Let's Any see technical if, difficulties? Let's <laughs> see right. if he remembers who we are. <laughs> if he doesn't, I'd be shocked. Should I call Mr. Wesley? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be shocking. Who is it? <laughs> Hi, is this Dave? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Dan. I've got uh, James here with me. Hi, good morning. And Vic Dorso, who I think you know. Yes. And so uh, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be on the uh, Grog Talk podcast. You're live. Okay. Well, I just got my uh, phone set to speaker mode here, so maybe this can all work smoothly. Um, <laughs> No worries. Uh, things going smoothly is not what uh, our podcast is known right. for. So, no worries. Technical train wrecks is all about it. Yeah. Right. So, so, okay. Well, um, so uh, just to let you know, to remind you, we are taping from Dave Arneson's Blackmore Studio in uh, Full Sail University, and so we thought what we would do is we would dedicate this podcast to uh, talking about Dave Arneson. And so, obviously, no surprise that we would invite you on because, of course, uh, we know about your history uh, with Dave Arneson. And so, we were hoping that you could tell us a little bit about, uh, and, uh, and I know you've, you've done this for Secrets of Blackmore already, which is was an amazing video. So, shout out to the Secrets of Blackmore yep. uh, documentary. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'd love to hear you talk about uh, your, you know, how you met uh, Dave Arneson and what your initial experiences were. And, of course, we want to hear about uh, uh, Bronstein. Um, and um, it wasn't on the shelf it should have been on yet. So 
Bungalow was a copy of Gettysburg Battle on Hill, so I said, well, what's this cool-looking game with a cannon on the cover? So I bought that, and then I was immediately confronted by the problem of any war gamer in the 1950s, which is, where in the world can you find somebody else to play against? Um, I'd recommend a few friends into playing it with me over the years. And eventually, um, when I got into college, uh, I had a circle of about three people that I was playing games with. But there was a phenomenon from that period, which was uh, the Opponents Wanted column in the General Magazine, which was, of course, the magazine published by Avalon Hill. Um, and in it, for no cost to you, you could get like three lines of text saying where you live, where your phone number was, and that you were looking for opponents, and which Avalon Hill games you love to play. Um, so I was reading it, and I came across a venture from a risk kid named Arnest, and it was was looking for opponents, and um, I thought, well, this is great, so I called him, and uh, he said, oh, oh, it'd be great to meet you, sure, come on down. So then the following Saturday, I went down, drove down to the address, and um, walked up the steps to the little red house, and um, knocked rang the doorbell, and uh, David's mother appeared at the door and said, a little surprised, I think, to see somebody who was a college-age person standing in the door asking for her high school-age son. But she said, oh, David and his friends are down in the basement. Go on down. So I went down, and I discovered that there was Dave Runnerson and I think three other guys uh, who were all high school students with him blustered um, around the table with uh, some Avalon Hill game spread on it. And so there was a certain amount of um, awestruck on his part because after a while I was a college man who had my own sports car and he was just a high school kid, but it worked out well. Uh, and by one stroke, I had effectively had double the number of war gamers that I knew in the Twin Cities then. And our group was um, very eagerly uh, looking for more people as was the standard for any war gamer in that period. Um, and so we were, we were, you know, hunting around trying to find other people. And one by one, other guys showed up that joined us. In my case, guys who showed up were college age. And in Arneson's case, guys who were somewhat younger. Uh, and that was, um, that was being some military simulation association, the MMSA. Um, and, uh, we had officially gotten started before Arneson came along. We got started in September of 1963, or maybe October of 63, but in any case, uh, before winter set in. Um, and we expanded over the years, and it got to be a pretty good-sized group. Um, it became fairly obvious early on that Arneson was a very smart kid, and um, so he took a very active part in the gaming and so on. And there were some of the older guys, guys older than me, I should say, who didn't really much like that. Um, I have to say in retrospect that uh, they were more justified in not wanting to have uh, artists and the rest of those dumb kids around than I expected, than I thought at the time. I thought they were just being snooty. But um, it was, of course, a legal problem in that you had to be 21 to drink in Minnesota. Oh, okay. And um, while the... Uh, well, the guys whose house we were mostly meeting at was two years older than I was, and therefore, he was two years older than I was, he was married and had a little girl, um, and we were meeting in his basement all the time, which was nice. Um, he had a concern about alcoholic beverage consumption. He wanted to do it, but as long as the kids were there, 
you could see himself getting into massive trouble with uh, some authority somewhere along the line for contributing to the delinquency of minors. And so he really wanted to like, shed all these kids out of the group. Now, at the time he was coming up with these pronouncements, um, let me see now, my, my time's right, yes. But when he's coming up with these pronouncements, I was still a little short of 21 myself, but he was he was willing to, you know, bend that one a bit because I was, uh, I was a college student exposed to alcohol and everything already. Um, but he wasn't really telling me things like, gee, I'm afraid we'll get in trouble too. We have, we have wine here um, and uh, when we're playing our games um, and if somebody's parents are going to find out I'm going to be in trouble. He never said that to me. He just said, oh, these dumb kids, they want to hang around here. So there was a split in the group. And at that point, um, his very high-handed approach to chasing up all the kids bothered me a lot, so I decided I was going to go hang out with Arnis and, and, the, and the kids instead of hang out with, uh, with uh, the older guy whose house we've been at. Um, and we got along fine with that. I mean, I got along fine with that, and Arnis was very happy to have some of the old guys uh, stay with him, and he became a, uh, a major focal point for gaming in the uh, Twin Cities area then. Um, so shall we shall we get on to other things? That covers how I met him and uh, how he rose to prominence. Well, yeah, Dave, I'd like to know who came up with the idea of running the campaign games together. Because my understanding is you were running Napoleonic miniature war games, and at some point in time, Dave Arneson, if I if I have my facts right, starts stringing the battles together in more of a, a campaign feel. And, and it, is that correct? And if so, whose idea was it to do that first? campaign business sort of ooze our way into it without a conscious plan. Um, it was quite normal in those days. The 50s and 60s era wargaming was, was uh, miniature wargaming was, was pretty, pretty crude. I mean, it had been going on since 1913 when H.G. Wells came up with Little Wars. Um, and H.G. Wells, in, in Little Wars, H.G. Wells conjures up this idea that you will have uh, in addition to this figure sitting out on the, sitting out on the floor, in his case, with uh, the terrain you set up around your around your room and you're fighting your battles with them, instead of just a one-off battle, you're here. There's no reason why you're here except that you're going to have a battle. Um, he suggested that you could have a map showing the countryside with towns connected by roads, and you fight your way across that map uh, with um, you know arrows and circles and things. Um, uh, drawn on it, and you have an overarching campaign of which your battle is a part. Um, and this gives a certain amount of rational, um, uh, what can I say, uh, background to why you're having this battle. It also gives you um, reasons why your battles don't always just consist of 100 guys on each side. Uh, you have uh, you have the driving features of the campaign. Um, he postulated that back in 1913. And those of us who've been able to find a copy of Little Wars, which was way out of print by those in those days, um, but he, we'd heard of it somewhere along the line, and so he dug around, he found it in the library or wherever. Um, so we were exposed to that notion outside of ourselves. However, we were at that time doing the Molianic era battles using a set of rules that we'd gotten um, by somebody, I think it was David Candler, who was the author of it. Um, and... We were having just one-off things with what forces showed up, depending on what troops everybody had painted up. 
And so it would be uh, Mike Norman's Austrians versus uh, my French versus uh, uh, Greg Scott's British uh, brother and Anderson's Russians. Uh, everybody was happily painting up figures uh, as needed and to, uh, to play the battles with them. They were getting bigger and bigger. It was then worked out that it'd be nice to try to do this campaign kind of thing. And at that point, campaign was um, drawn from military history where you have a specific campaign, like the Peninsula Campaign in the Civil War, the Peninsula Campaign in the Land, of course. Um, and people would try to nominate, to, to model that in the simplest way by just listing all the battles that were fought in that campaign, and then they would set first battle and they fight it, then it's a second battle and fight it, without any reference to uh, how, how things turned out in the first battle in the real world, influenced what was going to happen in the second battle, and that influenced what was going to happen in the third battle. But in the typical campaign of the era, you weren't keeping track of that. You were just fighting like a world series. It's best four out of seven. Uh, you'd fight these seven battles, say, and uh, the team that took the of them would be the winners for the campaign. Then, however, we got more complicated, and Arneson began to ride herd on all the details and um, give us positions as European heads of state in his first Napoleonic campaign. Um, and we would um, organize our navies and our armies. Uh, we, he worked out, he'd always research in libraries come up with what does a 74-gun ship of the line cost, and um, how many men do you need to man it, and how many guns does it carry, uh, or for that matter, what does a regiment of cavalry cost to raise and maintain, versus he'd a lot, uh, and so on. So it was uh, it was quite a, quite a pile of work on his part, and he wasn't alone in it. All of us, once you got hooked on the idea of doing this higher-level campaigning business, um, were madly researching whatever would give us an advantage in the campaign um, and uh, historical details for him. So he was ably assisted by somebody whose name you people probably never heard, Randy Hoffa, who um, uh, went on to found CNC uh, Military Miniatures Company, and they formed a 285 scale uh, micro-armor. Um, but he was uh, an, eager, an eager student of about the same age as Arneson, and the two of them were pouring through the libraries at the U of M in Minnesota, or the, uh, the St. Paul or Minneapolis Library, finding books, finding references, and doing some massive historical research to to, put, to keep this campaign going. Um, it was enormous work, and the kind of thing you could probably only do if you either independently wealthy, which none of us were, or, or a college student, and you could you could uh, you know have your own time to yourself aside from what it did to your grades. So he was, he was doing this legwork on maintaining his campaign for everybody, just huge amount of stuff. And he became more and more a central figure in the Twin Cities gaming area. You, they, by when, we, when, we, when we hit our peak, we had about 40 people in our war games group. Um, and uh, at least half of them were uh, in connected with Arneson, or centered around Arneson. He was the biggest uh, single focal point for gaming in the cities after the group started fragmenting. Um, so he became very important with that. Now, you want to ask me another question, or let me just keep rambling? <laughs> well, well I, I'd love to hear about Bronstein then. And so when, when does Bronstein fit into this? It was, was this all happening before your Bronstein game, or, or was this after your Bronstein game? That was, that was 
started before the Bronstein game. Uh, in fact, we could even say that it started before Arneson because thinking back on this now, Daniel Nicholson was one of the earliest guys to come into town who came to the University of Minnesota to go to graduate school to them. And he came from having been an undergrad at Bozeman State in, in Montana. Um, he arrived in town looking for a wargamer to play with. Uh, because he'd had one roommate who played war games with him back at Bozeman, and he was dying to find somebody else. So he gets to the University of Minnesota, he goes into their card catalog, and he wants to see the 30 books on wargaming, and indeed, they did have some. So he proceeded to check those books out and had a brilliant idea. Um, in those days, when you got a library book out of the library, it had a, uh, a little envelope, that's uh, uh, not right, a little pocket in the back of the book, um, with a three by five card stuck in the pocket. And then the card was all gritted off and whoever was checking the book out would sign for it. The librarian would stamp the due date on the card and stick it in their card file to keep track of who had that book out. And then of course start contacting you about, we want our book back if you didn't get it back at an appropriate time. But when, they, when the book came back in, they took the card that they'd used once and they stuffed it in the back of the book again. So as a result, the card would have the last couple dozen people who had checked that book out would have their names on it. <laughs> Nicholson realized there's not a, I can find word numbers. Um, so he looked at a book that he'd gotten and uh, there were four people on there who checked it out in the last five years. And he assumed that if you checked it in the last five years, he might still be in town. So he then called off, found all of us in the phone book and called us. And sure enough, Dan and, um, and three other guys, um, then actually Dan and two other guys, then came into the, our group because Arnie said, I checked that book out and, and Dan found my name. Um, now, Dan in Montana had been running a war game, a campaign game of the early critic, uh, early and uh, fairly simple type. He had a Montana highway map, and you got to be in uh, the ruler of one of the counties of Montana, and the amount of budget that you had was based on the population of the county. Um, and so the principal counties of Montana were handed out, and then you would, you would campaign your way across from campaign. You would fight your way across, uh, conquer your way across, I guess, Montana, Sounds to hard. get at the other uh, major counties. And that was the that was the first time I saw working campaign in operation. That was before ours and Dave joined the group. But that campaign was a lot of talk and never actually came to pass because the burdens of working out all the research on I want to go down this highway, what's the what's the what's the terrain like in this place? I mean it's a highway map. All it shows is where the roads are, not where the hills are. So so we were um we were learning how to go about doing a campaign game by having this unsuccessful and could never really get it running right um, uh, Montana, yeah, World War II technology Montana campaign. But so that's where that's where we get really got into campaigning, and then that idea was around and it had failed, and Arneson picked it up again with uh, more experience later. Now, who else would I should I should I cite in all this? I'm sorry, I, I got off your question. That's okay. I'm going to lower the volume here. Just a second, Dave, just because I wanted to distort a little bit, so try it now. Okay. Uh, well, we'd love to hear about, so, the Bronstein won, the very first game you ran for, for Bronstein. Okay. 
You, you, you felt okay. it was a, you felt it was a fail a failure, and if I recall correctly, that was also the famous incident uh, with Dave Arneson dueling with uh, Jim Clark. Is that right? Yes, yes, quite so good for you. Um, all right. Well, in '67, I graduated from Hamlin University, and I got a fellowship to go in physics at the University of Kansas. So in the uh, about September of '67, I moved out. I moved out of the Twin Cities and down to Lawrence, Kansas. And um, while I was real busy with uh, graduate school in physics for the first six months, I really did miss my friends. And so in '68, then um, I got I I taken for the summer '68. I I got home for a while, of course, between sessions, right. And then I was going to be coming back again you know, around Christmas of 68 uh, for just, you know, a week or two weeks between, between semesters. Um, and I was, at that point, we had gotten into this Napoleonic wargaming uh, based on um, Strategos, the American Game of War, by Charles A.D. Lewis Totten, which had been written in 1880 as a training manual for the U.S. Army to run war games. Um, so a professional work at it before. Um, it was enormous, 340 pages of this thing. Uh, when we found it, it was, the, it was the book, which I and the three other guys had checked out of the UNM library causing Dan Nicholson to find us all. Um, all of us who'd read it said, this is gigantic, the biggest ever one game you got only has like 16 pages of rules, and it's got 340 pages of rules. How could anybody ever manage all this detail? Um, and uh, we had kind of looked at it, been awestruck, and put it aside. But by the uh, 1965 time frame, 66, um, we we're having a problem with our, with our games that we were running in that the rules we had, this set by, uh, by Chandler, um, uh, War Games, Dutemps, Napoleon, um, were full of holes. And people were trying to drive trucks through those holes all the time. So we have a battle get started, and then something would come up which needed to be, well, something would come up, and someone would be would say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Best we didn't we agree that the way we would handle this would be such and such." Oh no, I don't think so. No, we didn't say that. And then he turned into an argument for the rest of the evening. We'd never get the battles finished. We hit some critical point, and the the. Two parties involved with a fight with each other all evening long and never get done. And at the time, I did not realize, well, I sort of realized it, that basically some people had, had come to the conclusion that as long as I argue all night, I can't possibly lose. Um, and other ones just love to argue. Um, and so they, they, for most of us, in a, a battle with of us standing around the table with miniatures out there, and nothing's going on except two guys shouting at each other across the table, and it was not satisfying. I, at that point, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. In Totten's rules, the Stratigos rules, um, you have a referee who resolves all these kinds of things. And if he can just say, okay, you've got five minutes, tell me why you should get to make this charge across this swamp with your cavalry, and then okay, you've got five minutes, tell me why that shouldn't be possible. All right, you're right, he's wrong, carry on. <laughs> and you could get the game going, keep it moving. Um, in fact, just the threat that the referee could step in would, would avoid formal complications of actually having everybody sit down and argue it. And the game's got to move a lot more smoothly with that approach. Um, 
So I took the massive rules for doing war games in best of accuracy technology in 1880, <coughs> which were derived from the American Civil War statistics. <coughs> and I said, okay, well, let's, we've got Napoleonic war games, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backdate these things and cut down on the firepower and so on and get us back to the methodology of Napoleonic Wars. And I created Strategos M, which was a Napoleonic simplification of the, of the Strategos um, uh, military, professional military game. Um, and we were using it quite a lot. And that was the point at which the group started to break up because there were a number of people in the group who did not really like the idea that anybody would ever be able to tell them they were wrong, um, and that they absolutely did not like having some guy be a referee who would run the games. So um, that was where we, we split off, and Arneson and I and a large chunk of the group stuck together with the Stigos rules for Napoleonic gaming, and the other guys went off and did their own gaming things um, elsewhere in the cities. Um, now, and in the middle of all that, at the at the tail end of that, rather, Arneson is getting started on this Napoleonic campaign that he's going to run. Sergigos has become the tactical rules to use for fighting the battles, and I go off to I go off to Kansas. Um, so I'd be down in Kansas, pining away from my gaming friends in the Twin Cities, and um, inventing new battle scenarios. I was becoming noted for inventing battles. If I was going to referee a battle, I would wind up having this whole complicated backstory and it would be um, um, something sneaky and devious about the way you deploy your forces, that sort of thing. And I would come back from Kansas with a package and we'd get together at my folks' house and I would run a battle for everybody and get me. I got into it. Now, I had, I had discovered, as had David and a couple of the others, that the seemingly thankless fascinating a referee where you didn't get to play um, was um, was not that bad. And, uh, you could you had the advantage of this Olympian view of things. You knew what was going on in the battle, and the other people were all following around. There's a lot of hidden movement possibilities with a, with a referee. And so um, it wasn't all bad to be the referee. You could you could stand being a referee every every couple of weeks and missing out on the weekly game as a as a player because of the compensations that you got for being a referee. So I came back I'd come back with the game all with them. Now we finally arrive on the doorstep of Brownstein. Um, I had been reading books about the theory of of game design. Um, uh, game theory is a mathematical discipline uh, that was much uh, pumped up during World War II for operations research purposes, in which you could dictate optimal strategies for what pattern to use your heavy aircraft fly in to search for submarines or how to operate convoys and things like that. And I had some books on that at the University of Kansas Library, which I read. And I was also interested in um, sort of broader questions about gaming. And I looked at it and I said, you know, it would be neat to have a game where instead of being either on the red or blue team, whatever nationality countries those referred to for this particular historical period, um, typically a war game was being run as a hobby war game would have two sides. You'd be the French and the British or the um, Italians and the Germans or the Germans and the British, whatever. Um, and everybody that was in the game would be on either Team A or Team B. 
Um, and you had just a simple two-sided thing. But in, in games theory, um, there were prospects for having multi-sided games. Now, multi-sided games certainly already existed. Monopoly, for example, let's say everybody's out for himself, right? But there was another complicating factor in the real world, which I saw in these, these abstract books I was reading, uh, which is that in a multi, well, you don't always just have a simple head-to-head competition in the world. It's normal to have, each person has a bunch of objectives you'd like to satisfy, and the reason that you can end anything by negotiation instead of total total elimination is that in the, in the real world, if there's conflict going on, um, as, for example, between the union and the management of the corporation, um, there's a bunch of things that the guys in the union would like, like to get besides just more, more, more money per hour. And there's a long number of things that the corporation could yield on um, other than giving them higher wages. And so you get a negotiator in there, and in the end it develops that. The guys who work in the factory would really really like to have two weeks off every year instead of just one. Um, and if you're going to give them a two-week vacation, uh, then they're not going to be so sticky about the fact that the pay isn't going to increase uh, over last year's hourly rate. Um, and the corporation can look at it and say, well, if listen, we have a really slow season, every summer or August, is to work just goes drops out next to nothing. So we'll get everybody an extra week in August. That's fine with us. So you can you can come to a happy accommodation where each side gets something out of it. It's not a zero sum game. It's 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 you can both come out ahead. Now that's an example for man, labor relations management things. That was one of these books I was looking at. I said we could have a game in which you don't run an army. You don't even run a battalion of an army. You run one individual person who is out there trying to take care of himself and stay alive and maybe walk off of some loot and so on. And um, let's see how, how that could be done. So I imagine this hypothetical city called Brownstein, which is in 1796, and it is between the um, French and Prussian forces. Um, and uh, you people are all running civilians in this city with who will each have their own individual objective. I mean, the, the banker has a bunch of money in his bank, and if the town is overrun by the French, it'll probably all be stolen, and he has to come up with some ways of protecting himself against that. The, um, the uh, student, there's a, a radical students in town that support the French, who would love to see the French army march in so they can all cheer and, and erect a guillotine and have a revolution. Um, and there are all these other people who have their individual things in their lives, and they're pulling in different directions. And in the course of the game, uh, you will try to advance the interests of the character that you are playing um, by forming alliances with the other players. Um, and some people out there will be helpful to you, and some people out there probably will try to do their best to stop you from getting what you want because it's opposed to what they want. But it isn't obvious who is who in many cases when the game first starts. <laughs> One example is um, our student E, who it's briefly starts out, you are a lucky bastard. That is to say, you don't know who your father is, but the world has been working out pretty good for you lately. And we go through some briefing about how he's successful. He's, he's, he's a, a 
He is about to become a member of the faculty of Brownstein University. He is just hanging in, in, in at the edge right now. He's a tutor to the banker's daughter. Um, and um, he was, among his objectives are find out who your father is. Um, and so there, we dropped him in with this very non-military set of objectives, right? Well, so here I come back. I come back home uh, for for the Christmas holidays, and everybody knows Wesley's going to have a game at his house or at least at my father's house, actually, um, uh, on Saturday after Christmas. And um, which, by the way, is uh, today is the fifty-first anniversary of. Um, and. Wow. They all show up at my place, and I have the usual big uh, four sheets of plywood, three sheets of plywood uh, put together to make a big table, uh, uh, six by 12 feet, with um, lots of scenery, lots of, sorry, lots of model railroads, uh, scenery and buildings and stuff set up on it to make this town, and um, over on the side, I have the all, the, all of my Napoleonic miniatures um, all laid out like we're going to be using them in the game tonight because that's how everybody's going to greet this thing. And I have a feeling that it's a grand idea I've got that's going to fall flat on its face. And people are going to come to me and say, why the hell aren't we shooting anybody yet? And I'll say, oh, well, as a matter of fact, your brigade is coming in right over here right now. And we'll just start pulling out the troops and marching them in. And we'll have a classic Napoleonic battle and the hell with my, with my experimental idea. So I was set up to you know, distract to do that, but the, the troops are all there just as window dressing. They're, they're not there to actually take part in any kind of fighting or anything. Um, and so I got them together, and I had ideas about how I was going to run the game, and I had these carefully detailed briefings for eight characters in the game. And the players were going to be playing these eight characters. However, 22 people show up. So when player number nine shows up, I have to quick invent a new character for him and a new set of objectives for him and put him into the game. And as you can imagine, it would be inventing him as a running game, um, things are getting completely out of hand. So I had really lost track of who number 17 was and what he was supposed to be doing. Um, in the midst of all this, I had a plan of how I was going to run the game. The guys were all going to be out in the main part of the basement around the table looking at all the scenery. scenery. Again, looking at all the scenery, and I was going to be at the pool table in the next room over where people would come into me. I'd have a map, I'd have pins stuck in the map to show where everybody was. I'd summon somebody and I'd say, All right, you're here. What are you going to do next? Where do you want to move to? Who do you want to talk to? I'd get all the information from him and send him out and tell him to send back in so and so else. And I would keep track of what everybody's doing to have him rotate past my secret command post in the back room. Um, this was a really bad idea because with, with eight people, I now know I could not have run it that way effectively. Uh, with 22, there's no way. I mean, you'd get a chance to see me at, if I took only two minutes per person, you'd get a chance to see me once every 44 minutes. So this doesn't work. Um, two of the guys came walking into me Jim Clark and Dave Arneson came walking in to talk to me uh, without having been summoned. And they came in and they said, Hi, we're going to fight a duel. How do we do it? And I said, but, 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 
you guys aren't anywhere near each other. He's over here at the college, here in town here. No, I said, no, he came over across the river a long time ago. <laughs> oh, he did. I said, realizing that people are doing stuff without checking with me. Um, and so then we explained it a little further. And so I they said, yeah, and, and I'm going to, he, he's, he's insulted me, and I'm going to, we're going to have a duel. And I had this. This is a, a situation I haven't quite planned on, <laughs> but I just made it up on the spot. Um, I said, all right, you get to roll 3d6 and you get to roll 2d6. And the 2d6 would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm the captain of the fencing team. Why do I only get two dice and he gets three? And I said, because he's a professional military officer who has fought in dozens of duels to the death in his career, and you have been prancing around in the gymnasium with a sort of a little button on the end so you don't hurt anybody. Oh, comes the realization. Uh, and so, they rolled the dice. Now, it's not impossible. Under the circumstances, the guy with two dice could roll people will take it all 12, and the guy with three dice could roll a three. But that's not how it turned out. It was, uh, the score was rather, was uh, 2 to 17. <laughs> and um, Dave Arneson was around right through the heart. <laughs> and so, Arneson became the first person to ever die in a role-playing game. That's awesome. Um, but then it alerted me the fact that stuff was going on I wasn't party to. So I walked so I'm out of the back room, I went out in the main room, and there's people gathered together in corners, wheeling and dealing and haggling and just going. Tell me what they're doing. Uh, and so by the end of the evening, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I've been at it for 12 hours, oh, and I'm just drained. I'm exhausted. I called them all back into my little uh, bunker there, and um, I said, guys, I'm sorry. I'm just exhausted. I'm going to have to knock them off. Um, I just got blank of blue, and I can't begin to tell you who won this game. And, and my scoring system had completely broken down. It depended on me knowing every move everybody made and scoring him as he went along, and it was just never happened. So I said, uh, we're um, we're just going to have to uh, call it off now. I'm sorry I've wasted your evening. And they all said, no, oh, we love it. We love it. It was great fun. It was great fun. I thought, oh, they're being so kind to me. And then Typical they DM. went their way, and okay. I went back to, back to Kansas at the end of vacation. Um, and a few months, oh, a few weeks later, in fact, it was uh, uh, midwinter break time. Um, and they had camera had uh, University of Kansas had a kind of a stupid schedule where you would have all your final exams for the fall semester after Christmas, and then you would have a winter break. So um, it was it was an odd way to do it. You wanted the two vacations of a couple of weeks apart. In any case, I came back home again, and I said, so, so when are you getting another bronze fat game? And I said, it was a disaster. He said, no, no, everybody loved it. Well, gee, I guess, okay, we will. So I decided I'll, I'll, I'll run another one. Well, I was back for Easter. And between then and Easter, I sat back in my room in Kansas saying, what did I, you know, okay, this time it's not going to get out of hand. I'm going to put a real control on this one. So I came up with Bronstein 2. I've been reading a book called Kudita Practical Handbook. Uh, a neat book, by the way. You should, you should all read it. Um, which tells you how to overthrow a government in, in, in any of the ways in the world where you have dictatorships. Um, and I decided the next time I'd want to want to sit up in Latin America, we're going to have a banana republic. We're going to have this chaotic situation where all the people are pulling in different directions. 
old, but this time I'm not going to let it get out of hand. There's going to just be like four people in the game, so I can watch them all, all the time, and we're going to sit around the table so everything everybody does is visible to me. And they won't get to do nothing without getting cleared by me first. Well, that was a disaster. Um, that just, just, I was happy that only four people were invited to come play this game because only four people got to see what a stinker it was. Um, before I went home at the end of Easter vacation, and I proceeded to, uh, uh, to try to tweak the rules a little bit to make it work better. Total disaster again. So Brownstein's two and three are this Latin American scenario thing that was complete failure. Um, and then I went back to college until the next next uh, summer, um, saying to myself, what did I do right the first time and do wrong the second time? And I concluded that I, I came up with two critical ideas that were important to it. Um, the one was in... Uh, uh, there's this great British motto. Um, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Now that's supposed to be about good sportsmanship. But in my case, what it was, was it really is how you play the game and not whether you win or lose. You play Dungeons and Dragons millions of times by now. And you get some people and you say, okay, what's, what was your, what was your coolest thing you've done lately, right? Oh, they'll tell you something like this. We went our way through the woods of doom and gloom until we found the tower of, of eternal damnation. Um, <coughs> and we gathered at the base, and there was only bodies laying around it. Um, and um, we wanted to climb up the side because there's no doors or windows in this thing, so way up at the very top, there's this barred window. Uh, we wanted to climb up the sides, but it's all covered with glass. It's slippery, and you can't climb it. So... We had our magic user levitate my thief all the way up 70 feet up to this window on the top of the tower so I could pick the lock and we could get in. As soon as I got the lock picked, this black dragon stuck his head out the door and fried me to a crisp. And then he came down around the tower and killed everybody else in the party. It's called Tuesday at Pixar. And, uh... Really, you'd say to him, oh, so throw party kill. And he says, yeah, but it was so cool because uh, Jack's barbarian got in this really good lick at him and broke one of his wings. He couldn't fly anymore. But in the end, <laughs> he goes through the whole, you now you get, you know, 15, 15 minutes of blow-by-blow description of the battle. And they all had a wonderful time, even though they all died. Um, and for nine out of ten gamers... That's it. It's your things you do, the cool stuff you pull off in the middle of the game, and not whether you came out ahead or behind on points. There are about 10% of them, you have gamers who absolutely insist that they've got to get more gold pieces than everybody else or more experience points or whatever. They've got to have these tokens of victory. But most people don't. They just want to participate in it. They don't care if it turns out in the end so much. And that was one principle. The other one that I came up with, which meant for me that I did not have to have an intricate scoring system that would be absolutely fair and even. I would instead have have a, an open-ended system where I could work out who won, but I didn't have to be able to hair split between them. Secondly, um, I had said something about Chico's hand rules years ago, which was very important to how to play the game. And that was that um, players can attempt anything, but not always 
successfully. Um, if anything comes up and they want to try something, they can tell you, well, I want to do such and such. And as the referee that's running the game, you say, well, um, gee, that looks like that'd be really hard to do. And, he, and then we have some discussion. For example, party and colors a flame pit. Um, your barbarian hero says, I'm going to jump across the flame pit. And you say, wait a minute, that, that's a really wide flame pit you're going to jump across. Are you sure about that? And he says, okay, I'm going to take off all of my armor and just strip down to my loincloth and I'm going to hold my dagger in my teeth. And now I'm going to have a long run at it and jump across. And because he's come up with some sort of reason why he should do a little better than a total uh, absolute guaranteed failure, you say, okay, roll 3d6, and if you score um, 16 and above, uh, you successfully cross the pit. You've just given him a really poor chance of making it, but is he going to chance? And he still hasn't elected to make a run for it. He could still say at this point, uh, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. But he says, yes, of course, I'll go for it. So Throg, the barbarian, madly runs down the hall, lunges out across, and now we roll the dice. Now, how do you play it from there? Well, if you come up with, say, 11, up too bad, Throg doesn't make the other side. He can burn to a crisp. It's his own fault for having made that stupid choice. It's the fault of the dice for just being out to get him. But it's not the fault of the referee. Um, on the other hand, if he rolls 17, 16, 17, 18, he makes it miraculous, fantastic leap you've done there, boy, congratulations. Right? Now you're on the other side, and the, uh, the guys on the other side have to throw a rope across to you or something, get everybody else across. And, of course, if he rolls a 15, you, can, you, can, you will then proceed to run it as follows. Wow, Throg just gets his fingers hooked on the far edge of the flame pit. And the flames are licking at his feet. What are you going to do now? And if Thrag is smart, he says, I spit off the dagger. <laughs> and he makes it as a miraculous feat, you see. So um, with that kind of an approach to things, things get much, much livelier and a lot more fun. And um, so we came back, and I set up this Brownstein 4, which is in the Banania. Um, in Latin America, and we had all these characters. We again, player characters, individuals, each have their own meta, their own goals, and so on. And it ran really well. And when we got to the end of the game, um, uh, I had the scoring system I had in mind. I, I, I ran it, something like going at the end of the game, not continuously throughout the game. I ran it, and we worked out that because the head of the secret police and the head of the army. <laughs> had agreed that they would indeed stick together and it privately told me, each of them told me that he would honor his commitment to the other one and not stab him in the back um, that between them they had enough strength points in various ways to guarantee that they could create a stable government for the country and go on to be in a new dictatorship um, the alternative was if nobody came up high enough congratulations you have a civil war keep fighting uh, when I got done with it, I then proceeded to tell them the amazing things that Arneson had been doing in terms of role-playing throughout that game. And everyone was just awestruck, and they said, yeah, I don't care what the scoring system said, he won. So, now, uh, there we, I gave you a ton of answer for your question, simple little question. No, that's great. No, thank you. Um... It's just amazing how it, you know, the game we play is basically is what you described what fifty something years ago. That's that's 
truly amazing. You know, and, and the fact that you did have kind of stepped fails where it's not just, you know, a lot of times it's save or die. You could, you, you already put the thing of, well, you maybe got poisoned, but you're not completely dead. Uh, that, that, you know, all the modern games that we play today even have all those features that you guys just made up. Totally incredible. Um, so is, do we have anything from the chat? Any, any questions? So if you have questions for Dave Wesley, please uh, put them in the chat. We'll be happy to talk or else Dan has his extensive timeline. This is your life, the Dave Wesley edition. He's, he's got uh, for you. Yeah, and I don't want to monopolize the question. So if anyone here has, uh, Vic, if you have any questions, just... No, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to set up another game with David probably end of February. We're going to probably do Bronstein 4 with the wow. Twin Cities gaming group and I just got to get with David and make sure all the dates are correct and Fantasy Flight Games is where we usually play so we can I'll get all that together and, and we'll put your link to, that'll be on yeah. Facebook right? right so if you're flying around in February in the Twin Cities area that would be amazing to get there mm -hmm. awesome and Dave I would, do you credit Dave Arneson with the idea of creating your own player character because I know when you did Bronstein they were basically you know what we would now call pre-generated characters. You gave them motives. And my understanding is from your Bronstein 4 game uh, that, you know, that uh, Arneson decided, I want to be this guy who's, you know, pretends he's part of the CIA and all that. Do, do, do you credit him with coming up with the idea of creating your own character? In, in many ways, um, if you were, I had all these, as you would call them now, pre-generated characters um, that were really be driving the activities, but um, in many cases, the, my intention was, and my briefing with the players was, that you could kind of run it any way you wanted to. I mean, you can be, if you're, just because you're the, the general of the Air Force, uh, doesn't mean that you're limited to telling your airplanes where to fly, or your more more to the point, your paratroopers what buildings to seize. You, um, you have a lot of interaction with the other players, and um, if you uh, run down and capture the radio station, you can start imagining and making up mythological um, uh, press releases from the radio station to the public and things like that that if no actual, you know, was not pre-planned, pre right? But Arneson, who was given one of the least interesting of the characters to play, of the region characters, was this pacifist who's uh, handing out, putting leaflets around town to try to overthrow the uh, regime by, uh, by moral pressure, which is going to get him nothing but a bullet, you'll understand. Um, and he came up with this whole idea because it briefed the guys, he could get enough to where he started to brief the guys individually over the week before we played the game. And so I already briefed on who he was and where he works and what his, what his official rules for how he's going to score points were. And then he came back to me and he needed 14 pieces of forged identification that he had created. He said, could I use them in the game? And I looked at them and I said to myself, oh, this is going to totally destroy the play balance in this thing. That's just, I, I can't let him do this. And then I smacked in myself a dope, dope slap and I said, players should be allowed to try anything, not always successfully. Um, so, sure, Dave, go ahead, I said, and we'll see where that goes. And it turned out, of course, to inject all sorts of activity in the game. Nowadays, put into a, a, a Brownstein 4 game, everybody who's already played role-playing games a bazillion times, um, they immediately have things that will come to their mind about, well, I'm going to go down to the 
fishing wharves, and I'm going to see if I can buy a fishing boat from one of these peasants along here, because that way I can get out of town alive. <laughs> or whatever, you know. Um, and uh, which people, which were not called out part of the rules, but that was, that all went back to um, my ideas, and you know, for that matter, Totten's ideas and Stratego's, that the referee is there to fill in all the gaps in the rules. Hmm. Anything that hasn't been provided for, you can come up to him and say, oh, I want to try to build a bridge across this creek. And the referee then has to turn the crank in his brain and come up with how many hours and how many men it will take the bridge built and that sort of thing. Um, you don't have to have a bridge building rule in your 340 pages of rules uh, to, uh, to cover that. No, I'm I'm wandered off again. So, but I assume, I assume with his successful move, didn't exactly invent the make your own character, but he got really close to it. Okay. Um, I was much more enthusiastic, much more um, uh, embellished. I just sort of hoped people would do things like that. I hadn't called out that you want to. Um, but once Arneson did it, and everybody else followed that pattern for subsequent Brown side games. Great. Okay, and we have some questions, I believe, right, from the uh, chat room? Menion asks, I'm not sure if you asked this, but when did experience points first make an appearance? Ah, yes, so the question from the chat room, uh, Menion, one of our uh, listeners, asked... And patron. And patron, uh, asks, uh, do you know when uh, experience points, right, and, and level advancement first made, or experience points, first made an appearance? I can't give you a specific date on that um, because I went off to the Army. Um, uh, there was just war out at the time, you may remember. I was, in October of 1970, um, uh, I had to uh, go off and report for active duty. And so then for three years, I was only home on leave a couple of times. When I left, Arneson said to me relative to Brownstein, is it okay if I keep running these games when you're not here? And I said, David, it's set up in your father's basement. Of course you can. Um, we had already worked out that only a modest number of people could run a game competently. Uh, basically, we hadn't yet invented the term Dungeon Master, but the referee, who is the guy who runs all this stuff, requires a certain amount of mental agility and honesty and, and dealing with the players and such. And um, not all of the gamers were up being to, to fulfilling what we now call a Dungeon Master role. So Arneson and I and two of the other guys were doing the game running in alternation so we could be players on the other weekends. Um, now, as for when did experience points come up, that was one of those things that arrived while I was gone off in the Army. The three-year hole in which this happens, I know what happened before I got back because I came back on leave once and it was in operation. But I can't tell you exactly when, except that it was fairly late on. Um, up to that point, when Arneson, the first, the first Blackmore games that I got to, Arneson... Um, was basically making the characters work you. And so I was an army officer, and I was in pretty good physical shape, and so I got to be uh, a, a serious uh, muscle-bulging barbarian type, um, whereas, um, I say barbarian, but it was not an actual class. It was just you were a character, you did things. Uh, well, some of the other guys wanted to get into magic, and so Arneson invented rules for how they would do magic. When it came down to... Um, progressing to the higher levels of experience, 
that was an idea that was adopted from Michael Carr's um, Dawn, uh, Fight in the Skies, his World War One airplane game, mm. in which you would have a pilot and he would go out and if he won a victory, he came back. After so many victories, he got to improve his abilities by one step. He would be able to be, um, have an additional maneuver card or he would get uh, a better die roll for scoring hits on the enemy or whatever. And so you, you bump these guys up with increasing experience and built up on their 20, 20 successful missions. You got to be pretty formidable. Um, uh, and Mike's exact rules for that, you can find him if you get yourself a copy of the fight in the sky since you don't work. But that was an outgrowth of one of the things that would work out in the, in the 1972-73 time frame, partway through 70-73, I'm home on leave, and Arneson has um, worked up the fact that um, your players, they say, okay, Players could take hits, but usually players didn't die. In fact, it got to a day that the machine would step in and save your butt, and your character would never die. Because I was afraid he killed off people's characters. He was killing off that very much that person, and uh, you couldn't. Uh, people wouldn't want that. And <laughs> I said, David, it is incredibly dull if you have absolutely no chance of getting out dying. It just just does not work. You've got to make it possible for us to die. So we then moved into the idea that you would have characters that you're running like puppets, not that that guy down there is you, that is your, the flock of the barbarian or runner that you are running. And if he gets killed, well, then you'll damn full of the barbarian will come in next week um, and you'll start a new character or you'll leave him come in with a little different kind of a guy. And that worked out to have all kinds of advantages. And it was roughly patterned on the way that Mike Carr was doing his airplane, his uh, World War One pilots. Um, so I can't tell you exactly when it occurred, but it did occur probably in 72, before I got back, before I came back permanently from the area. Okay. What's What's the other, do you have other questions? Yeah. We have other questions here. Uh, Cyber has to ask a question for David. Do you play a lot of RPGs still? And if so, which game is your favorite? So do you play a lot of RPGs still? And if so, which is your favorite? Question from uh, longtime Cyber listener, Heston. Cyber Heston. Also a patron. Also no, patron. I, I do not play a lot of RPGs. I mean, I run Bronstein repeats, Bronstein 1 and Bronstein 4 games. And one of these days, I will dust off Bronstein 5 and bring it out for everybody, too. Um, we have... Uh, but as far as the role-playing games go, the only thing that I get involved in uh, for the last several years has been the annual Blackmore game um, that's been run uh, for uh, on Artisan's, Artisan's birthday. Um, and uh, as part of the ongoing Blackmore campaign that has been kept alive by Bob Meyer um, since David died. Uh, David was doing this at least once a year. We all get together and do another step forward in his Blackmore campaign. And after David died, Bob decided he was going to keep it going, so he's been doing it. So I get involved in that. But other than that, I do not see a lot of uh, role-playing games. I'm, I'm mostly an historical gamer. <laughs> and so we do naval battles and, and uh, uh, the Polanyic naval battles and, uh, and the World War II naval battles and American Civil War uh, land battles and uh, that sort of stuff uh, in my gaming here in the Twin Cities. Okay. Uh, any any questions from the chat? Yep, more questions uh, from the chat room. Thompson asked, "Did you uh, the group in 
parentheses make the rules on creating an, an individual character? So the question is, did uh, you guys, the group, uh, make the rules for creating individual characters? And I assume the Blackmore group. Yes, uh, Blackmore, uh, Blackmore uh, Moore moved that once I got harnessed him off of the I can't ever kill anybody uh, position and into, oh yeah, you can die and you'll have to stop a new character. Uh, shortly thereafter, we were involved in, um, uh, yep, okay, well, sit down, here's some dice, roll some dice and create the characteristics, um, wisdom, intelligence, strength, uh, dexterity, and so on. Uh, for your character, and um, game forward with this poor level one guy that you just created. Um, and, uh, but a lot of that evolution was going on when I was only coming home on, you know, every several months I'd get the little leave and I'd come home for Christmas or something. Um, so I just got these snapshots of it happening as we went past. Um, but it was, uh, it was underway, and by the time I got back in 73, um, David had already taken the game down, taken Blackmore down, and showed it to Gary. And Gary had created Greyhawk, and David and Gary were corresponding with each other about rules, ideas, and things. So the, 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 the you know who who made what contribution to where in that period is a little harder for me to say because I was. You know, I was out, out, out of the loop, and I would just show up, and something would be happening. Oh, this is for later last night, and that would be it. Um, other guys that were in the group all the time, uh, who who talked to me, of course, about what's been going on while you were gone, uh, gave me some secondhand knowledge on things. But that's not quite the same as firsthand testimony. Do you know, out of curiosity, do you know? Did you speak with Dave Arneson about his thoughts? on original D&D when it was published in 1974? Because I know that Dave Arneson later publishes his own role-playing game, which my understanding is he wanted that to be more in line with his vision of what the game would be like originally. So, you know, I, I, I didn't know if, if you were aware of whether or not he, you know, was, was, you know, what his view was on that original product that came out. Well, I came back in the fall of 73, and uh, at that point, David and Gary are in the process of, of sending thick envelopes full of stuff back and forth between them, because we don't have the internet in those days. Um, and we're 400 miles apart, so you don't just you know, hop in a car and drive over there. Uh, so they are exchanging manuscript copies and marking them up and sending them back. And so I got a certain amount of exposure. I'm going back and telling and hanging out with David a lot. A certain amount of exposure to David's... Um, uh, red penciling of the latest set of proposed rules for uh, from Gary, uh, and uh, what does he think he's doing? He would say things like that, right? Like, um, so there was more dispute between them. But ultimately, the bottom line of it was that Dungeons and Dragons uh, was getting hammered out between them. Um, Arneson could not type. Uh, and Arson's uh, spelling and grammar left much to be desired, too. Um, but he was running his end of it then through uh, the wife of one of our friends, Gail Gaylord, who's still alive, who was actually typing everything up for David and um, uh, has, uh, you know, has many things to say about that because she was right there. I, she's doing the typing. Obviously, you get to see the manuscripts, right? Um, and there was 
this healthy exchange between David and Gary about how to do things. And um, to hear, hear, hear Arnison's bitching and humiliating to me, it was all like, that guy never had an idea that could possibly ever be wrong. Gary just comes up with these screwball ideas that are never going to work, and he keeps shoving them into these rules, yada, yada, yada. Right now, of course, that's, you know, not intended here syndrome, too, of course. Um, uh, he always found that the way he planned on doing things, the way that somebody else planned on doing things. So there's a certain measure of, uh, of uh, oh, I suppose Gilbert and Sullivan argued with each other about the, the stuff that they were writing in collaboration too, right? Um, so I don't think we should attach too much uh, emphasis to the notion that somehow Gary screwed it all up. That, that's ridiculous. Um, he, Arneson, had the feeling that there were too many of his ideas that Gary had had, had dropped from the rules and substituted his own dumb ways of doing things. This was a, a constant complaint, and it would be the case of anybody who would collaborate with anybody, I think. Um, in the end, after the after they split up, there was an extended period in which there's this lawsuit underway, and in which each of them would have a lawyer saying to them, um, don't ever concede anything. If we're going to give anything away, let me do it. You just shut up. Anybody asks you, you say you did it all by yourself, and the other guy had nothing to do with it. That's our starting position. And so Gary is making pronouncements of that sort um, through the pages of the Dragon magazine, um, which gives me enormous pulpit, which has resulted in tens of thousands of people who read it when they were 12 years old with the sacred words dripping from Gary's pen um, and they, have never, they will never get over the impression they got in those days about how one-sided it all was that Gary did it all by himself. At the same time, Arneson is being told by his lawyers never admit anything to anybody about anybody. Gary having done any of the work, this claim was all yours and then when we negotiate this matter we'll come up to some setting in between but we'll leave it to the lawyers to negotiate. And that went on for years, and that produced some real hardening of positions and things, which was very unfortunate. Um, after they finally got settlements on it, and Arneson is, uh, now has a bunch of money, so he can start his own publishing company, he then proceeded to come up with Adventures in Fantasy, which was going to be his chance to show the world of how, how it should have been done. Um, so that is, if you want to compare... It says in Adventures in Fantasy with the way that, that OD&D is written, that's probably a good, a good source for you. So, um, yeah, that's... Arson Go ahead. was uh, in, a, in a strange position there. And what made it stranger was that... Um, uh, come on, David. Get me, get, my, get my characters right here. Um, We're just running out of time. All right. Oh. There we are. Um, Lawrence Schick set out to write a book about how uh, role-playing games got started. And he came to Arneson in the middle of this period when the lawsuit's going on. He goes to Arneson and he says, uh, where'd you come up with the idea for the role-playing stuff? And at that point, Arneson's lawyer would have said, absolutely, I did it myself on Monday morning. I was looking in the mirror and I said, I'm going to invent role-playing games or whatever, right? And instead, Arneson says to Lawrence Schick, Oh, I got it all from Dave, Dave Wesley. To which Lawrence says, who the hell is Dave Wesley? Um, but Lawrence's book that came out way back, 
Um, it has, in, at one point, and it, it mentions that Arneson credits me with having invented role-playing games. No, I invented it, but it also is a question of, it's one thing to invent it, and it's another thing to um, make it successful. We're going to end it. I love historical analogies. Uh, there is, uh, most people have never heard of Octave Chanute. Um, unless you live on the right part of Illinois where this Chanute field is located, uh, you've never heard of this guy. But he was in a maker of blighters back in the 1890s. Um, he was a part of a, of a general push to try to fly, and he built these really nice gliders, and he would get up on high hills, run down the side, and jump off and glide off across the valley with them. Um, and so, to some degree, though, that the aerodynamics aren't the same as a, a modern hang glider. It was the same sort of performance. However, you could get you could get quite a good long distance on a glide on this thing, and you could fly for several minutes. Um, his gliders <coughs> are these big boxy things. And then along come the Wright brothers, and they build their first successful airplane. And it looks just like one of his gliders, only they've put an engine on it. And Octave Chanute, for those people who are, you know, the, 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 very, the very small crowd of people internationally who were trying to fly, uh, everybody knew Octave Chanute was, and they went and interviewed him. They said, didn't these guys just steal that from you? And he said, no, no, they put an engine on it. <laughs> Their engine makes it possible to stay up. I go only step as long as, the, as long as, I mean, losing altitude all the way, so I jump up a high, a high mountain, and I keep them maybe 40 miles with this glider if I really thought about it. But uh, the, the, the Wright brothers, no, they, they, really, they really flew first. Now. And then you get into another question, which is, um, if Christian uh, was asked, so what's the future of this? Do you think people will make money in carrying people on airplanes? And she said, oh, no, these airplane things, they're never going to rival Zeppelin's as a way to haul people around. Because Zeppelin's, you can haul like 50 people all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, whereas with these, these airplane things are fun for, you know, uh, rides at carnivals and uh, maybe uh, flying around across the countryside looking for lost lost cattle or something, but they're, they're always pretty tiny. They don't have any real application. Um, and, of course, the Wright Flyer was well, not a real, very powerful airplane. But um, you want to see how those airplanes go from being a, a novelty that people play with to being something you make money with? Well, you can always talk to Donald Douglas. I mean, when the DC-3 comes out, uh, what, 30 years after the Wright Flyer, um, it suddenly becomes a really economic possibility to make serious money by flying people around in airplanes. Um, so there's a whole series of steps you go through where different people pick up the story and carry it forward. What? It, it, I did my first game with a... With a uh, characters, and so you would play that game the way that you would put on a play. Put on Richard Third. Uh, it changed who the actors are, and it looks different from the last time somebody did it with Richard the Third. But you still know that the is going to die. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I'm sorry, I wandered off into too much time here. I said, are we, are we off the air now? But uh, we're actually so um, we're, we're getting close, right? Are we? Yeah, are we, are you know, we, we're having we're having a because you know we're we're here and we need to move on before they. 
Yeah, before they kick before they kick us out of here, because you know we're 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 technically loitering at this point. So um, we wanted to thank you. We wanted to thank you for that. And and again, that's why we wanted to, like you said, it's it's not an either or. It's an and. It's it's a lot of contributors to this uh, great game. So we thank you for that. Yes, it was. That's one of the points that the guys who did uh, Secrets of Blackmore uh, wanted to make. That there's this whole crew of people if you're working on this. Some of them are making, you know, very small contributions to just by virtue of being a player. And some of them are making big contributions and introducing clever ideas. One person that gets ignored so often in all this has gotten very little attention because for most people it comes down to, well, who did write it then, Gary or David? Right? And that's, it's not that simple. But both of them work together on it. But one person who gets left out of this is Dwayne Jenkins. Because mm. Dwayne had the really important inspiration in all this of moving it from each time we play the game, you get one of the rules in that game, and it's that May 1st, 1796 date that it was the last time you played it, and you run through it again with different outcomes. Uh, with him, you would establish that you had a character, and when you get together next week, it's your character is you again, or not as you, but you, you play the same character game after game after game, and time passes so that... Um, his, his, one of his brilliant things was that he arranged to do an old West-themed game um, called Brownstone. Uh, strangely patterned after Brownstone for some reason. But in any case, it was an old West game, which was a huge advantage because everybody knew all the stuff they needed to know thanks to all those cowboy movies about what the old West is like. They know what a Winchester is, they know what a cold, cold six bullets, you know. Um, you don't have to invent all that and write it all down for them to explain it to them the way you don't get a set it in 1796. Um, and he also established then that you had a continuing character. So you came in and you were um, El Pancho, the Mexican bandito. And the very first game you play, you and your, your buddies ride into town and nobody gives you a second thought. But after you've robbed the bank and gotten out of town, um, there you have a poster with your picture on it will be posted prominently in town the next time you come to town, people will be looking for you. And um, the bank, which you blew up in your effort to open the safe, is no longer standing. And, you know, so he had a continuing evolution, which is what we're used to seeing nowadays, but which was a bold new, uh, bold new departure in terms of how he ran his games. Right. And Blaine did those, and he did that just before Anderson got going on Blackboard. So, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for having advanced the state of the art. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. Because again, you know, part of this is w rediscovering uh, the history and, and really capturing it. So, um, you know, we definitely appreciate your time in letting us know. And our our listeners had some really good questions and really appreciate it as well. Is there any final thoughts you want to say before we head on out? Well, it's been it's been great fun talking to you guys. And as you see, it's easy just, you know, push the button and I, I, I run on and on and on. Um, Vic is going to try to set up a Brownstein 4 game up here from the Twin Cities. The last time we did this, we had two guys who were all the way up from Columbus, Ohio, to get into Brownstein 1 back on December 6th. And uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, doing another game. And if you guys uh, want to drive all the way from Florida, why, by golly, you get a chance to see some snow. Ooh, you're tempting me, David. <laughs> you, need, you need to work on your sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ooh, 
snow and everything. That yeah. sounds wonderful. I think we. I think it's the other way. We need to bring you down here for a summer of bronze sign. Yeah, summer in Bavaria. Yeah, that's right. Bring you down here for our tournaments. You're getting me down there. You have to consider that I'm retired and I don't have a very big pension. So um, trips to Florida uh, are going to be uh, out of the question for me unless somebody's paying to get me down there. Yeah. Uh, well, Vic has a big car. Vic has a big car. Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> you guys can, you can play a mobile bronze scene and you can stay, right. stay with one of us. That's not a problem. That's not a bronze fine. Huh? <laughs> All right. That's right. Uh, okay, Dave. Well, I, I guess uh, we're going to wrap it up from uh, our end here. So thanks so much again. We really appreciate it. It's, it's been wonderful. And uh, I... Have a happy new year. Oh, thank you. Happy new year, too. And remember, today's the 51st anniversary of World Playing Games. Well, uh, happy anniversary. This, can I say, this, this very day? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. the 28th of... We worked out after some head-scratching long days after we started. And it was the 28th of December...
went down there um, a few years later with, uh, with uh, Blackmore and Dungeon underneath their arms to show them off to Gary. Um, and that led Gary to create Greyhawk. Um, and from there on, the story progresses. All right, all right. Well, well. Thank you so much. This is this has been great. Awesome. We really appreciate your time. This is getting up early in the morning to do this with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, okay, I'm going to go back to bed now. <laughs> yeah, no problem. See you guys again sometime. Okay. I appreciate it. We would love to have you on again. Uh, yeah, we may not make it this year, but uh, yeah, we know you run your Brownstein game there each year, right? So, uh, are you, yeah. uh, right. So, Brownstein one of the four again. So. Um, you know, when we get there, certainly nice to see everybody. That great. That would be great. We'd appreciate that. All right. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye, bye Dave. Bye. Okay, bye. This has been a Bushy Puppy production. All rights reserved.